0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pillow talk with Sean Cameron podcast number four. This podcast themed running fast and slow. Um, we're fortunate to have guest Michael Fitzpatrick on the podcast with us. He's the fastest friend that I know. He's a 240 Boston marathoner, which for those of you that can't do division by 26.2 in your head equates to a 606 per mile pace. Is that right? Roughly. Roughly. Roughly <laughs> 606. I don't know it to the next decimal. <laughs> Um so and what's also unique about Michael is that he's a he's a he's a bit of a marathon snob. <laughs> he has oh, okay. only run the Boston Marathon and he does not engage in other half marathons, 10K's, 5K's, corporate challenges, things of that ilk. So he will uh run the Boston Marathon each year and do it with Gusto. He's a he's this year Wave One Corral One Boston. Um so welcome, Michael. Thank you. Good to have you. So, given that Michael is the fastest friend that I know, given that I don't hang out with East Africans and Mo Farah and the like, I'd uh, be interested in covering in this session um, some of the biomechanics around running quickly and basically how you actually run fast. So, we're now heading into Boston Marathon season. The marathon's on April 18th. I've gone to a few of these so-called training sessions around how to run your best Boston and this and that. And they all kind of, they tend to give ticky-tacky advice in terms of just, you know, get out there, here's a random program, but they don't actually talk about what it feels like to be in the moment, to move quickly through space. And so I was wondering if you could give some sense of just how you do what you do, Um, and to give some perspective for the listeners also. So Michael and I ran Boston last year in 2015, and we were at the base of Heartbreak Hill together. (laughs) (laughs) And let's just put it this way. Uh, Michael, I think you said something like showtime or go time. I said, uh, now's the time to go. Let's do it. (laughs) And do you remember my response? I don't think I remember. Uh, I whimpered something. I think you said something about not today. (laughs) (laughs) I probably said, you know, I had envisioned this, but it was not meant to be. <laughs> so just to, let's put it this way. At that point in the race, there were probably about two hours gone by, about 10 kilometers left. Michael covered that 10 kilometers in probably 40 minutes or under that, and I think I covered that in probably an hour, <laughs> probably more than an hour. So how did you do it? How do you do it? And how do you move so quickly through space, kind of mechanically in that, in the process of moving swiftly?
1: Um, well... I mean, I'd start, I would start from the beginning that, well, first of all, Sean is also one of the fastest people that I know on foot. And, uh, you know, we, we train really hard and we, we learn from the things that we do. We learn from our mistakes in our races. We learn from our mistakes in our training. And, you know, we just have to keep building upon that um, to create, like, this, this formula that, you know, works for us as individual runners. Um, for me though um, training for Boston which which I run Boston because it is it's the race that I save my legs for you know I've, it's a very personal race for me and I have chosen to make myself available to run it every year now and uh, it is also the the world's old oh, the it's the United States oldest marathon right yeah. is it the
0: oldest it's the oldest running marathon Yes, I think since 1896 because this year is it's so still it's certainly that the, is still the that is still running now. Yes. Yeah. I don't. Right. I don't yet have fact checking on this program. But I I'm read sure this back, was... and I'm just I'm totally botching it right now. But <laughs> it's something close to that. <laughs>
1: um, but it's a it's a great race, and I think the way to to run that race is to do race specific training. Um, so you know, like they say, train for the hills. Don't take them for granted. You, you know, know, you definitely have to put in the work there. Um, I've done a lot of reading on the Boston Marathon and, yeah. how, and how to run it well um, one of the best things I've read is uh, don't do anything stupid in the in the first three quarters of the race yeah. because really I mean it, essentially the race um, like I've told Sean the race starts once you either get to the hills or once you get over the hills it depends on how you look at it because getting up over the hills is hard enough but then once you get to the top you still have a 10k to go and you know, everyone just kind of um, just lets everything out at that point. You you just got to race down to Boston and it, use whatever's left in the tank.
0: So part of what I uh, admire about Michael is that he's he's a student of the sport, but he's also a student specifically of the Boston Marathon. That a lot of your training, as you mentioned, is geared specifically towards this race and thinking about hills. And you know, one example is that we have the. Charles River Esplanade close to us for our training. And we could do the preponderance of our training along that river, but I'm not sure if it necessarily helps when for a course like Boston, for instance, you spend, I don't know, two thirds of it or so basically kind of cruising downhill and then you get whacked, 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 where you get your one, two, three, four hills, and then you and then after that, if you've got anything left, you can push and run with the Michael used kind of the the metaphor of a pack of hyenas or just like this completely different animal that takes over when you have some of these fast guys that crest Heartbreak Hill. And hopefully you have something left at that point. But if you spend all of your training just on flat surfaces and not replicating the conditions of the actual race, you really could be in for a surprise. Um, So I I, I admire that kind of race-specific, course-specific, day-specific type training. Uh, And it's even something that's come to fore for this Boston Marathon season training, where last winter, because it was so brutal in Boston, there were so many runs that I had taken on treadmills, gotten inside when we couldn't get outside. And then, if you remember, race day last year, kind of a miserable day. And obviously, I couldn't take it on the treadmill. I had to get out there and I, I withered. Uh, you know, I, I certainly um, didn't perform at the level I wanted towards the end. And so now this training season getting out, I'm just thinking, all right, it's raining a little bit. It's a little bit windy. <laughs> that's Boston. That's, that's Boston in March and April and go out and get it. So I, I like Michael's kind of focus, uh, what you said in terms of learning from the mistakes and how you're really a student of the sport.
1: Uh, last year I actually, um, I, I trained for that. I trained in the, in the tough weather and I trained for tough weather. And this year, um, it's been so mild, but honestly, I've been trying to Get my mileage up, so I chose um, to actually hit the treadmill a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easier on my joints as I'm getting older. It's easier to get the mileage I want, um, and it, I've seen that it's worked for other people. Um, I don't really remember the uh, the runner's name, but um, there was this guy who ran 90% of his training because he's from Michigan. 90% of his training he did. On a treadmill, and he was doing up to 120 mile um, weeks training. I think it was the Houston half marathon, and he won it. Wow! From this year? No, it wasn't from Um, this year. I can't. I don't know the date, but I I just read it. It was in one of the books I've been reading recently, and you know, and it that gave me some that gave me some faith that you know that that, the treadmill can actually help me, but also because uh, it has been so much more mild and. A couple of years ago, when I ran my first Boston, it was about seventy degrees and sunny when I hit Newton, and mm-hmm. I just felt like, and even in the seventy degree heat, I felt like I was cooking. Yeah. So uh, I've been training indoors with the with the treadmill fans off. You know, it's just like yeah. sweat it out. Get used to doing that, so that come race day, if it is an un, you know unusually warm day, which this spring is supposed to be, you know, I'm prepared for the heat too. And it's just not one of my not one of my weather conditions that uh, my body deals well with.
0: So it's interesting because this training season, the lever that I've been dialing has been when when the conditions turn a little bit sour, I've been trying to brave those more. That's kind of a, a dial I've been trying to turn. It sounds like the dial you've been trying to turn is just good old-fashioned mileage, which then now begs the question, it was a theme I wanted to touch on with you, um, which is basically what is the critical variable in your mind in terms of just getting faster over long distances. I'm not talking about track and field type distances, but basically once we start getting the half marathon and marathon type distances, if you want to be able to hold and sustain speed over an extended period of time, are we literally just talking about good old mileage, like get it up there? Because there is a whole other school of thought that you cross train, just get your heart rate up, You know, swim, bike, um, do whatever it takes basically just to be a fit athletic person and then good results will follow from that or are you a little bit more in the camp of to your point you have to replicate what you're trying to do which is cover distance with your feet swiftly so
1: you you know we're born with a certain amount of talent and that talent can carry us you know to some success but you know for me though I'm not like an elite runner I'm not the best guy out there you know, if I want to do really well, I have to train really hard. Mm-hmm. And so that means that my engine, which is like my heart, my lungs, and my, my whole system that you can't see, <laughs> you know, that, that needs a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that, I found, is to you know, just consistently um, increase my fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a decent amount of speed still for my age. Um, but now the goal is how long, you know, how far can I carry that speed in the course of a race before, you know, everything starts to catch up and like, you know, I slow down, but you know, that's inevitable, but you know, um, you know, like I'm comfortable running six minute miles. How many six minute miles can I do? You know, I don't think it's a matter of just going out there day after day and seeing how long I can hold six minute miles Mm -hmm. because I would never, I wouldn't, that's not sustainable for me. You know, I would would burn out, I'd get injured. I'm always getting injured, but, you know, in previous years, I've tried to do that kind of training, and it just doesn't work for me. So now, like, I know I can do six-minute miles, so I only really need to prove that to myself maybe one day a week when I do my tempo run. The rest of the week is just trying to uh, recover from the workouts I do or just build on my fitness. You know, the speed is going to take care of itself
0: at this point. And then when – so it sounds like – you have a goal of hitting maybe a certain mileage in a given week or month um, in your training, which is all good, but it doesn't sound like hitting a particular pace is as important to you. I, you're not really trying to replicate race-type conditions in your training. Because you you hit a lights-out pace. I think it was 606 marathon pace. Is, I, I don't want to say as good as it gets for a non-professional, but... What else do you want? I mean, that that's a, a wonderful performance, and that's what you produced on race day. So the question is, are you doing that in your preparation, in your training? Because that seems to me perhaps a mild inconsistency where, yes, you want to increase your mileage, but if you also want to replicate race day conditions, why wouldn't you be replicating 606-type pacing in your training, too? The thing is, you don't have to do that every day. Uh, if you did
1: it every day, you'd be racing every day. Right. You know, if you're going to a race pace every day, you're, you're essentially racing. Um, so for me, that means just doing my tempo run um, every week, increasing the mileage little by little to whatever's comfortable, but yeah. trying to get close to, if not just a little bit faster or slower, yeah. or whatever, it doesn't really matter to my goal race pace. Okay. So um, th- this is similar to um, how Meb trains too, like where his... His minimum tempo run is an eight mile run. He'll do it at at or you know faster than race pace, yeah. and then as he increases his mileage through his training um, training block, um, he'll just try to keep his pace around that pace. So we can kind of just like you with your long run, how you gradually build upon that, he gradually builds upon your tempo run. Okay. So it's not, it's not such a daunting. You know, when you get down to the get to the race, like maintaining that pace for that distance doesn't seem as impossible. Yeah, and then because you've already done
0: it. So um, it's interesting you brought up Meb as an example. So for the for listeners that don't know, Meb Keflezighi, who won the Boston Marathon twenty fourteen, he's now representing the U.S. for the Olympic marathon. One of the most celebrated distance runners out there. And what Meb is also known for is just the efficiency of his stride, how he's also a great student of the sport and really takes a lot of care to deal with the the so-called little parts of training, just core strength and exercises before and after running, etc. And one of the parts about Michael's training and running that I also admire is, in getting back to this theme of mechanics and form, is that If you ever get a chance to see Michael Fitzpatrick running, I would recommend it because your form and your stride is probably one of the smoothest that I've seen, again, from a non-professional perspective, from myself who I'm not in the sport professionally and you're not in the sport professionally, it's not what we do for a living. And yet I admire it almost in the way that I admire what Meb does or for those that really know their track and field, the great David Rudisha, 800, 800 meter world record holder. He just looks so smooth, so comfortable. And i was wondering if you just have any thoughts on literally as, as you're thinking about stride, cadence, form, rhythm, are you thinking these things? Is it completely natural to you? Um, because again, these are the parts that they don't talk about and... Those training sessions of just literally, how do you go from being a 10-minute miler to a 9-minute miler, a 9-minute miler to an 8-minute miler, a 7-to-6, and then at the super elite level, 6-to-5, for instance. What is actually going on? Are you making tweaks in terms of uh, your body positioning, your arms, whatnot? Just as one small example, I ran track and field in a very ho-hum manner in (laughs) high school, and my track coach, Coach Coder, basically gave the example of any time you're running in a sprint, pretend that you're holding potato chips in each of your hands. Don't break the potato chips. You, you want to hold the potato chips between your thumb and your forefinger, but you want to feel so smooth and comfortable and relaxed that even though you may be exerting yourself to close to 100%, you're still in control.
1: So, I mean, I, so I've been told even since high school when I started running that my form was pretty good. But I feel like that when I first heard that, I thought I could make it better. Like, like Someone says my form's good. Well, how do I make it perfect?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's kind of a... <laughs> um, I don't know. I got a little vain about that comment that, uh, when I heard that. but uh, So something that like, I do work on. I do think about it a lot. Um, but at some point, you have to kind of forget to. Otherwise, you... I mean, especially in like a long-distance race, you kind of have to lose yourself a little bit in it um but then check back every once in a while so for so what that means for me is like you know like the like potato chip thing i you know just make sure my thumbs are on top and my hands are relaxed i make sure my jaw is relaxed because if your jaw is relaxed your shoulders will drop you know there's just little things little tricks that you can do um to kind of from top down just make sure that everything's where it's supposed to be and um you know, I do all the form... I do form drills when I can. Do them right on comm out in front of my apartment. I, I'm sure I look kind of silly to most people. Form you know? drills
0: are like ace skips and butt kicks, things like that.
1: Well, I, yeah, I do most of them. The skips aren't really my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I've what always, have a food I've food always felt a little awkward doing the skips. <laughs>
0: I've like, got my routine. <laughs> I mean, we shall have ours. I, I do ace skips, butt kicks... Side to side, karaoke, and then after I'm done, I just throw my arms up in celebration. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Very nice.
0: Is <laughs> that right here on, on your street? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Oh, and if I'm on a treadmill, I'll, uh, I'll uh, backwards run slowly, too. Oh, I've seen you do that, <laughs> too. It's good stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, I
1: mean, I have to check. you have to check in, make sure that, you know, everything's where it's supposed to be. But at the same time, you the more relaxed you are, the, the better your natural form will come out. I mean, they they say that that great form will, will happen over time, and, you know, with just putting in the amount, you know, the right amount of miles. But there is also something to be said about um, examining what you see and how you feel uh, when you're running. Uh, when I'm at the gym, there, there's mirrors around, yeah. you know, and I, I take a peek every once in a while. You can't look too often, cause then, <laughs> well, because then you'll if you're tired, you'll be trying to run in a form. You know, if you first get on the treadmill and you're you know you're still feeling a little achy, creaky from like you know. Um, the morning or whatever, hard workout the day before and your body really hasn't like opened up yet to your natural form, you know, if you try to tweak it then, you know, you could just be putting yourself into danger, you can get hurt. Right. Just like pushing too hard before your your body's ready to, you know, to kind of really open up, you know, can also put you in that position.
0: Yeah, I mean, even Meb, I, I remember he was talking about is training leading up to boston that sometimes he'll just run by store windows and just check up on himself make sure everything looks okay like if you see that your head's sticking out or something just looks off and you're not midfoot striking or whatnot just it's okay to make these little tweaks along the way or i think you, you often hear these guys talk about how they'll just make small little adjustments little tweaks along the way which is why a mirror or a store window can help did you read *Men for Mortals*? Yes, I did. I'm in the middle of now. <laughs> um, okay, good. And then, as we talk about kind of um, form and cadence and rhythm and just doing these sorts of checks and whatnot, let's get into just the the tactics around race day strategy, pacing. Like Michael's going into Boston 2016. I've already told him he has nothing left to prove, he still has something to prove and he wants to go out and I'm assuming you want to either better what you did last year, which is just unbelievable, Um, or otherwise you may have other personal goals you set for yourself. So when you go into what we're about to go into on April 18th, in terms of the actual race day itself, are you running your own race? Are you aware of the people around you? Are you thinking of the so-called sit and kick where you have guys that just are really comfortable for one half, two thirds, three quarters of the race and then don't really race until, for instance, they get to the top of Heartbreak Hill? Um, obviously at the super high level when you see the elites, they basically end up running somewhat even splits where their first half marathon is roughly the same time as the second half marathon. It's a little challenging for a course like Boston because you're net downhill, it feels pretty easy. And then it feels really difficult. Um, so just mentally, do you set that stuff out in advance? Or do you just kind of see how it goes on <laughs> Well, I'm not coming
1: out to win it. Um, not this year, anyway. Uh, so it's out, it, you know, to compare myself to the guys around me would just, I mean, that could just spell disaster for myself. You know, I, I don't need to compare myself to them. It's a long race. You know, I have to run my race no matter what. You know, it's not like I'm hanging out at the front of the pack, and it's you know, I'm I'm trying to race down $150,000. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's still that thought in my head that maybe I won't finish. You know, it that, that should yeah. be that you know we're, we are all mortals. You know, maybe we won't finish. Yeah. So you know, one of my goals is always to finish yeah. to run the whole marathon um, without stopping, and you know, and then I have you know also obviously I have other goals. You know, I hate to mention them now because you know so, yeah. I been told to. Uh, under promise, over to lower. Yep. Um, but yeah, I'd like the better my time from last year. I think that I'm really capable of doing it. Um, I just think that it it comes down. It really does come down to just running my race on race day. You know, in our training, you know, we can see what else, you know, whatever else is doing. I see what you're doing. You see what I'm yeah. up to. You know, and sometimes it's it's really hard to not compare because you know we have trained together. And you're like, yeah. oh well, now he's we see how I can see how fast you're doing, and I'm like. Oh my god! You're gonna blow me away this year, you know. But you really just don't know.
0: Yeah, and then so and there's obviously the race day itself, which matters, and trying to improve upon our own performances. But just at a deeper level, and maybe this is why this podcast is called Pillow (laughs) Pillow Talk. Why run fast? Why why run quickly at all? What is the difference between running a two forty marathon? and a 4.40 marathon. You know, the, the average marathon finish time in this country is probably something four to five hours if I were to guess. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. So aside from just personal goals that you set for yourself to just improve and make sure Michael continues to stay strong and healthy and active, you can still be strong and healthy and active running a marathon an hour and a half, two hours slower than, than you run it. So what is it about speed itself and, and covering ground as quickly as you do, or frankly, even just on the treadmill as quickly as you do? Is there anything, and it's okay if the answer is no, but is there anything above and beyond just that immense personal satisfaction and glory that you feel when you achieve something like what you did last year at nope. Boston? The <laughs> answer is no. There's nothing beyond that. I mean, honestly... You know, I and I actually
1: said this to somebody the other day that I I wish I could just go out and run, just to run, every time, and not push myself and not have it hurt. You know, but there's something about that hurt that I just I'm drawn to it.
0: Well, I mean, let's put this way: there are myriad running clubs in the city of Boston, and most of them I would say are somewhat social in nature, where you just to your point, you just get out and chit chat, run, and, and. there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with just viewing the sport as more just another medium of convening with other people and getting some fresh air and and doing something healthy. Um, but but the the way in which you run, you train, and some of uh, your friends and training partners, it's at a different level, and it almost migrates beyond these the social and normal into. Ex- true exertion and setting up a training plan in order to excel on race day. So, why do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> We're not professionals. We don't get paid. There's no, no prize I curse know, here. Like you have a job and you um,
1: know. <laughs> you know I, like you said before, it really does come down to uh, it's it's very personal. It's just you just want. I just want to see what I what I'm capable of doing. You know, can I still do this? You know, I did this. You know, 10 years ago in high school and college, and I was fairly successful at running then. And it took a long time off. And when I came back, I realized I still got some speed in me. And I'm just, I'm just really curious how far I can take it. And that's really what it comes down to. Like, I ran, okay. like, just under three hours two years ago. I dropped 17 or over 17 minutes off that time that's last un- year. Unbelievable. And I just, I'm, I'm really curious what I could do if I just keep on, you know, plugging away at this.
0: And it's it's interesting, I mean, you, when Michael expresses his curiosity about what he can do, I, I almost wonder if it's curiosity about what Michael specifically can do or just what one can do, a human can do, that lives a somewhat normal life, that isn't a professional where this is what you're doing morning and night, every day, 365 days a year, and to see the enormous improvement, what Michael said, going from a three-hour marathon, which is sub-three, which is in and of itself extraordinary, to 240 for someone who has a, a a job and also a demanding one in which you're on, on your feet and you're busy. Um, I, I think it's pretty exemplary, and I, I do think there's something special about that where you can push yourself in one domain of life and really see something special about it where, you know, as an example, Michael is probably... We were talking about this before the podcast. He was a more talented track and field athlete than I was, where he was telling me his 400 meter times. And I didn't produce those types of times in high school. And so, part of what motivates me, also similar to what motivates you, where I never even conceived of myself in this way, say 15 years ago, you know, 20 years ago. And now, it, it is a way in which I identify myself, where I think of myself as a distance runner. And not just tracking people on short distances, but over distance. And I had had trouble with even basic breathing. It's probably the reason even now I don't like swimming. I just can't get into the rhythm of, of breathing and whatnot. And so it is something, I, I like Michael's term of curiosity, where you almost are just curious about what what can this body do? What can this heart do? What can this mind do? And... You, know, you you often hear so for any students of the sport, I recommend um the late coach Arthur Lydiard. I don't know if you know this name, but Lydiard talks about with his theories. And yeah, just. <laughs> he yeah he he's, he has a nice treatise on how to run efficiently over distance, and I like how he basically breaks down running into what it is at its essence. And he says. Distance running is—it's something like 98 percent or 90, 98 or 99 percent aerobic. This is basically just your strengthening your heart to be able to transfer oxygen efficiently throughout your body. That's what's going on, and you're training your body to do that. And you have, you know, bodybuilders that train their muscles, and you as a distance runner are also training your muscle. It's just you're training your heart, and your heart's a, a muscle. It's an organ. It's—it's it's, it's a muscle that can become stronger and more efficient. And I echo Michael's sentiment, just in terms of the curiosity about what you can do when you push yourself to the next level. And what's also amazing, (laughs) what's also amazing as well, is so we're talking about this theme of sit and kick, and uh, one of our, one of my favorite athletes, Mo Farah, who is often known for just having the uh, tremendous ability for being able to hang out with whatever pack of runners uh, is around him, and then just produce this phenomenal kick towards the end of his race where, yes, you could say that most of the sport is aerobic in its nature, but then there's that almost anaerobic element that will, quote-unquote, win races, where you're out kicking someone towards the end, they'll just come down to a matter of seconds or whatnot. Um, And so that's not a part of certainly my training. I don't... Uh, i'm not
1: really worried about (laughs) up kicking to to win
0: um any olympic
1: marathons (laughs) or races anytime soon
0: (laughs) fair enough um and then can i ask you what do you think about when you're running
1: um pretty much i mean everything i mean if we're talking about a race you know it's i just have to keep on thinking about all the little things all the little pieces that i've put together through my entire training to get me to that point and you know, am I doing everything the way I'm supposed to do it? You know, am I keeping my pace? Am I sticking to my plan of the race? And you know, Am I taking my nutrition when I'm supposed to? Oh, and by the way, I don't know if I've told you this before, but the, the best advice I got from a friend uh, for taking gels during a marathon yeah. is take them when you start to doubt your training
0: mm-hmm.
1: or your race or your performance that day. Because as soon as that's starting to happen you're probably getting you're getting into a depression because you're yeah. you know the rest everything else about race day is exciting yeah. you know so if you're having a negative thought, you know something's definitely off, and it could just be your sugar
0: it could be yeah i mean this is so Lydia would talk about how your glycogen stores just go up and down up and down, and if you're just out of the necessary fuel to cover the distance, you're out of luck. And there's nothing wrong with, with, with you, and you can often have these doubts around it. But it could just be you're low on sugar. And uh, to the viewers who are running distance events, I highly recommend that you not do what I did at last year's Boston Marathon, which was not touch water, Gatorade, goo, anything until mile 15, which is That's right totally reprehensible. I saw you. Correct. Yeah. I looked so comfortable until yeah, Right
1: before I saw you.
0: So then, so this is an interesting topic now, and I, something I want to touch on as well, which is basically dealing with pain. So it's it's a topic that really isn't discussed when you go to these fun little Boston Marathon training session, have some pastries <laughs> and snacks, and let's just sit down and chit chat about how training's going. No, 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 dude, let's talk about pain. Let's talk about what happens when you are low on your sugar, whatever is going on physiologically, but whatever you want to call it, you're hurting, you're in pain. And you have all these schedules and they look nice and you put them up on your refrigerator, like hit X number of miles this week, run them at Y pace, whatever, fine. But this isn't something that is free of emotion and feeling also. And so for someone like you, Michael, where you're just you're training at a high level, you're pushing yourself, obviously there are the inconveniences around scheduling and just all those other factors too, if just this takes time, it's difficult. But just the physiology of pushing through pain and discomfort—is this something that you still go through, or at this point is it so natural to you and second nature that it's almost kind of dissipated?
1: Well, I appreciate that you said that you mentioned um, not just the physical pain, but you know you go through emotions and all that during a race, and there can be emotional pain that you're having. Um, That can be in the form of your doubts, like I mentioned before. you know, it could be during your training when you're, you know, you're just tired of it. Yeah. You know, there's times in my training room. I'm just like, I wish the race was here already because I just, I want to take a break. You know, you just, you get tired. So it's not just um, the pains of like, of the race or if you get injured, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into it. And, you know, being a, being a distance runner can also be a really kind of lonely place to be. Yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time by ourselves, a lot of time in our heads and, and just, you know, working with our bodies. Um but you know specifically, I mean, with like racing, I guess, yeah, the pain is the pain just it's it's just something that's there. And um, you know, that's what we that's what I train for. You know, I know I know that when that last quarter of the race comes, it's everything's gonna start to hurt, things are just gonna start to fail. Um you know, we were talking earlier, Sean, about uh when your form starts to break and you know you start to feel it in your hips and like you're just getting weak. But you know, that's what we put in the work for it, because you know that that's going to happen. You know it's going to come at some point or maybe it doesn't come at some point, but but you have to be prepared for it to happen. And when it happens, it's just something you, you know, you just got to fight through it. You know, you, you've you done all the work and you just, as long as you keep your head focused um, and just think about all those little parts and just keep them where they're supposed to be, um, you'll probably finish all right.
0: <laughs> and do, is there, I wonder also if there's anything that, you tell yourself when, you know, you, you're going to be back on April 18th at the base of Heartbreak Hill. Yeah, same, same situation last year. You delivered a wonderful performance. Are there any thoughts specifically at those moments that are particularly low? Sayings, oh, just to prod you, I often invoke some of my running heroes. Like, there are guys whom I really admire in the sport for their tenacity, for their for their grit such as Mo Farah, for their form, such as David Rudisha, um, for their longevity, such as Meb, um, who just have exemplary work ethic and spirit around the sport that I think is phenomenal. Um, and so I will sometimes even impersonate those uh, people in my head while I'm running and feeling pain. So I will say things like, and the great Mo Farah, two laps to go, we've seen him do it before on so many occasions. Come on, Mo. Obviously, my name's not Mo, so, so I'm chanting to myself, come on, Mo, means nothing. Um, or even one of my favorite runners, the American Lopez LeMond, who's represented us in the 5,000 meter, he once miscounted laps in a race, in a 5K, and still won. He thought he had finished, so he had finished, uh, yeah, but he had absolutely. one more lap. And then the commentator, I love that, this line, he said, Lopez LeMond, he's got two kicks in him. And I just love that, where if I feel like, all right... I'm done. I'm spent. You've got two kicks in you. You've got another one to go. You always have a little bit left in the, in the tank.
1: Uh, I mean, I think we always have a little bit left in the tank. It's whether or not we find a way to tap into that. You know, that, that, that that's on us. You know, and that, that also goes back to your training. Uh, I do a lot, of, a lot of my runs. I'll just try to do the second half faster than the first because that's yeah. pretty much what's going to happen every time I race anyway, that someone's going to want to run the second half faster than the first, yeah. you know, even if we go out fast. So, you know, the more you practice it, the more you can do it, you know, when the time comes, that you know, you really have to pull out all the, the stops there.
0: Um, I, I don't really... And then, and then, so that's all good. Um, and then when you think about the actual process of digging deep and tapping an extra reservoir, are there any times in which you feel like, and this might sound like an odd question, but running with different parts of your body so they take provenance? So one example I was telling Michael is that I went on my uh, kind of longish run yesterday. I ran out to Newton and back and I was uh, feeling some pain, and I oftentimes feel pain around my midsection, my core, my uh, ribs, etc., and I knew that was happening, and so I kind of shifted gears and started running with my calves more, which might sound odd, but I basically just shifted the focus lower in my body and said, all right, you're not really doing well with your hip extension. Just try feeling a little bit more propulsion with your calves. Or is that a silly thought, and do you just think of your body as one holistic entity and you are running as a unit and it's not about your torso picking up the slack or your calves, your quads, um, etc? Well, uh, the, Everyone's body is a little different and
1: or very different in some cases, but we all have a, a form that is most efficient for us um, for any kind of given task. you know what sprinting form is a little bit different than your long distance form. But for you know, as distance runners, you know, with something, something can be off, and maybe it's just because your arm is swinging out a little too far, or you know, you, your toe off on your left side is different from your right side. Um, but if you like what you, what you were saying about adjusting and going to your calves yes. to help save you, <laughs> come on, come on, on guys. We've seen you do it before. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily go to my calves. As, <laughs> But, uh, just because I, would, I wouldn't, if you did that for too long, then you can cause yourself cramping in your right, calves, Your yeah. calves aren't used to doing yeah. the amount of exertion <laughs> that you're now yeah. trying to call upon them to save the day to yes. do. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, like even right now, like I have, um, a slight strain in my quad, um, which has been bothering me for like about a week now. And, you know, I'm still trying to get in some lighter, easier mileage just to, try to stay in the game and keep myself motivated, you know, and and also taking care of my injury but at the same time, but, you know, I've had to uh, kind of alter my form in a way, you know, I'm doing less speed work, less pounding on the pavement, you know, so, you know, you can, you you do kind of have to train your body to kind of pick up the slack when other parts of it fail. And And, and you
0: vary surfaces, right? Do you go, like, dirt, road, treadmill, do you do that proactively or is that just happenstance
1: um well if i when i'm running outside it's like like you said on the charles river yeah. you know you have the option to run on the grass on the dirt on the you know on the sidewalk there you know and when i get the when i have the, the chance i always hit the grass with the dirt yeah i have the the dirtiest pair of outdoor <laughs> running shoes um i have my gym shoes that have I, my outdoor shoes i just
0: love it like on the occasion <laughs> when michael and i are out running together if we're on the Esplanade or whatnot, and if there is an option of concrete and dirt, I will just kind of continue along my way along the concrete side, <laughs> and Michael will just kind of detour over into the dirt and grass. I like that. Every single time.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I, it also kind of recharges me, because the, the, uh, the, the ground is yeah. very forgiving, um, the, well, the pavement is, and when you get hit that dirt, it's like a recharge. You know, and I just—I really. Um,
0: do Do you feel like you have a deeper connection with the ecosystem, the Earth, when you do that as well? Is that I too pillar so. okay. <laughs> talking? <laughs> because uh, that—that's a big part of my running. I want to have a relationship with the planet. No, I just, I just <laughs> love—I love
1: trail running. You know, I went to school in upstate, upstate New York, and that's most of what our training was for. You know, for our long runs, and I, and I miss it terribly. You know, so any chance I get, I I try to hit the, hit the dirt. Good, um, But you asked me something earlier about like, uh, what do I, I, mean, I kind of got distracted from the question, but you asked me like during my race, you know, what, or running, you know, what do I say to myself? Yeah. And I, I think I lost that question. But um, like last year, I, uh, I brought a Sharpie to the start of the race. <laughs> okay. I wasn't sure what I was going to write on myself yet. I thought I was just going to write like my name on my shoulders and it was probably the best thing I did. It made me feel really good that I actually brought it with me. You know, I wrote on my hand. I wrote, "Don't walk," <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> because that was a big thing. My my, yeah. my uh, two years ago when I ran my first marathon, and I did some walking, and I I was determined to not do that. So that I needed that reminder that I'm not walking. Um, you know, I wrote my name on myself, so people were yelling my name. Uh, but I passed that pen around or that marker around with the, you know, at the tent you know in uh, athletes village, and people were loving it, yeah. it was a, it was the coolest thing I think I did it was yeah. actually it was just as cool as running the marathon because yeah. people really appreciate it and they saw that oh this is going to really work and this is going to help yeah me. Um, but then when I was racing, I you know I just had a whole bunch of mantras that I would tell myself yeah. um, and they, those were planned too it wasn't something I just like, you know thought up during the race. I was like all right I need to go this is part of my race plan and these are the things I'm going to tell myself when it starts to suck mm-hmm. um, Downhills, I would just tell myself, you know, don't get carried I away. Mean, let it carry you. Don't get carried away. Because, you know, I,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yep. you could very easily take those downhills too fast and then, you know, really kind of shoot yourself literally in the foot later on. Um, and then,
0: what else did I yeah. say to I myself? Mean, I one on uphill where I used to make uphills feel like downhills. <laughs> I know. Okay. So it's really, this is really cheesy.
1: But uh, when I was going up Heartbreak Hill, uh, I, there were two things that happened up Heartbreak Hill. The entire hill. I picked a guy that was running, that I thought, he wasn't even running any faster than me, but I thought he was faster than me. Yeah, I actually finished quite a bit ahead of him. But he was—he seemed faster than me, his form seemed really strong, and I'm like, this is somebody that I can work up the hill with. Mm-hmm. And I just imagined a three-foot rope between him and I, nice. and I decided that rope is not getting broken, no matter what. I like it. No matter what. And... You know he just happened to maintain the same perceived effort as I had at that point and I just stayed right behind him. it was probably really annoying for him yeah because there wasn't anybody on either <laughs> side of us and <laughs> there was just me breathing heavy behind him it was probably kind yeah. of creepy for him but there was that and then uh, <laughs> when um when that started to fail on the last hill because I was he was kind of um, slowing down a little bit I went to my go-to um, this is where it gets cheesy for me. this um, is Penclock. I know. Uh, I think
0: her name is Rachel Platten, Fight Song. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. that's all good. Go I went right there and I it. I don't want to, sing it? I don't want to <laughs> sing it <Would> you. <laughs> you do like no. it? But yeah, you, look, we have our songs, we have our mantras. I love the rope metaphor where someone's in front of you, don't let that rope extend. Um, you know, I have various people who's, I, I, I basically invoke invoke, usually it's a British commentator's voice in my head. Commentating head right. So that's <laughs> off
1: that's awful, that's awful. Like, uh, audible. And,
0: and that, like even a guy like Michael, you can't see this if you watch Michael run. You can't see him when he's doing a 606 mile for 26.2 miles, telling himself in his head, keep the distance between me and the guy in front of me like a rope that doesn't extend beyond three or five feet or whatever. You can't see that, but it's there and it's guiding us. And you know, even I remember Hicham Elkaruch, who's the world record holder in the mile, and he was asked about what he was thinking about when he set that world record. And there was actually a guy that was on his heels while he was trying to do it. And he just kept telling himself, like, Hicham, don't lose. Hicham, keep going after it. And he just repeat. Is that, repeating. the voice? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you just repeat these mantras to yourself. And so it's, as Michael said before, running can often feel like this lonely personal endeavor just out there mile after mile but it's almost as if you're having a a relationship with yourself where you're guiding yourself through this process and you tame you and you guide you and you push you and you have all these other people around you and you're competing but it's it's so notable how none of us competes and uh, trains in silence, in complete isolation, with nothing going on to guide us. Um, and so th- this is just, this is one of the themes, this is part of the reason, big reason I wanted to bring Michael on the show is that I know how talented and special he is as an athlete and biomechanically and with his form and we touched upon cadence and doing these checkups and mirrors and, and whatnot. But I also know that there's something deeper, where there's an internal reservoir of strength that he taps when he's, training or when he's competing and, and that often does end up as a mental component that you're not going to hear about in these uh, kind of glib marathon training sessions or these calendars that you can put on your refrigerator but often I do think make a difference in terms of a, uh, an exemplary performance and one that's less so so on that note thank you Michael good having you you're very welcome good luck on April 18th uh, for those that you as well thank you sir for, the, for those that are viewing or have anything to do with the Boston Marathon that weekend, you can find Michael Fitzpatrick in Wave 1, Corral 1, looking so, so comfortably.
1: Number 489.
0: Four, number 489. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Pillow Talk, Episode, episode 4. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome.